In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, it says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. and The word of, the Lord, of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You can be seated here this morning. John, as he is writing this letter, um, he takes this weird moment, and if you look inside of your Bibles, most translations in this section of Scripture, it kind of goes from paragraph form to a kind of a poetic stanza. It appears as though John takes a break, maybe lifts up his pen, I don't know, squirrel, I mean looks, sees something that causes a distraction or a, a memory that comes to him or something that he needs to do. I don't know about you because my mind is constantly going, even when I'm having my devotional time, I typically have to have a, a notebook piece of paper sitting next to me and even while I'm spending time with the Lord, things will come to my mind, a to-do list or something I need to be reminded of, I make a jot of it on this piece of paper and then I come back to whatever it was that I was doing. And in the midst of this letter, John uh, essentially breaks into a love poem, or he makes out in, or into a, a song in his writing here. In the midst of an evaluation of what it means to truly experience salvation, he breaks into a song, but a specific song, a song of encouragement. He's going to be very repetitive, as he has been, even in this sermon series, Jesus, the life, uh, the light, and love. We will see these themes kind of in a circular motion come back up over and over and over again. And even in this song or this poem that, that John breaks into, it's, it's very repetitive. Look at it. It says, children, you are forgiven. Fathers, you know him. Young men, you have overcome the evil one. Children, you know uh, the Father, fathers, you know him, young men, the word of God abides in you. This kind of repetitive language, and I think that there's uh, several reasons why, because in every good poem and every good song, there's typically a, some sort of hook. Um, but also as the people of God is that we have a tendency, it's our legacy since the foundation of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, that we have a tendency to forget. And so John kind of breaks into this repetitive nature in his writing. He covers the same topics and subjects kind of in a circular over and over and over and over and over. Get this, get this, get this, get this, get this. Be reminded of these truths. And so they need to re be reminded, in the midst of all the things that John has talked about so far, um, and that he's going to talk about, that, that they're okay. See, a lot of people have, have left the church. And those remaining at the church may feel like they're being left behind by these super spiritual people um, who haven't, aren't denying Jesus. But John is revealing that these people who have left the church, and even though those people who have left aren't denying Jesus, um, that they're not really Christians. 
And so it's leaving people who are still in this body of believers, and we'll preach a sermon here in a, in a few months, about a month actually, on those very things about people leaving, because that's what's covered inside of 1 John, specifically that whole idea when people leave the church. But in this situation, it's, it's not like people are leaving to go um, to a partnering church down the road. It's that these people have become so enlightened, so super spiritual, um, that, that we're the peons that are left. And that if we were really mature in who Jesus was and what it meant to be a Christian, then we would leave too. And so it's leaving those here wondering about their own salvation. Are we being left behind? Have we missed it in some some cases. I mean, the, the people that left, they were our Sunday school teachers. They were our small group teachers. They were pastors. They were preachers. They were our grannies, our grandmamas, our, our grandpapas who, who knew the, the Bible and still got scripture verses all over the walls at their house. And yet John reveals inside of this letter that they are lost and that the ones that he's writing to are the truly saved ones. And he, don't want, he doesn't want them to forget that. If you've ever, in parenting of a child, have you ever, or in an argument, maybe with your husband or wife or, or a friend or a girlfriend or boyfriend, and, and you're in an argument, and, and, and it's not that the argument is over, but you, you take a time out to go, but you know, I, I love you, right? And we've got to deal with this, and we've got more to deal with here, but, but don't forget, like, I'm your dad, and I love you. I'm your husband. I love you. I'm for you. Now let's, let's keep arguing. Right? Because you, you're still not done talking about whatever it is that you need to talk about. But you need to make sure that, hey, we're still on the same team here. We're, we're for each other. Okay? And the importance of that relationship. And so John has has said several things inside of this letter that could, in, in some ways, be maybe hard for people to hear. And he's going to say some things coming up specifically next Sunday that's really, really difficult to hear. And so it's kind of like he, he's trying to throw in some, some grace and some love and some understanding that though I'm say, I've said this and, and though I'm about to say this, you've got to understand it. it's got to be filtered through these truths. This relationship, the relationship that you have with Jesus. I mean, think about it. Listen to some of these things that we've covered over the last few weeks. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is the light and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are in walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That can be hard for people to understand. It can be hard for people to swallow. Whoever says, this is chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Be encouraged. Right? He's going to say certain things like this, like Pastor Justin preached on this last week. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. All right, so here's some, here's some tough statements, here's some, some tough evaluations for those of us who are in Christ that we need to be asking these questions, but John doesn't want them to forget, I'm writing to you because you are the Christians. 
So evaluation is good, but don't forget, I'm not, I'm not writing to the non-believer here or, or the deconverted Christian or the, the person who's walked away from the church. I'm writing to those of you who are in Christ. You are the Christians. Be reminded of that. Now i got some real tough stuff I'm about to say. Don't forget this. All right? And so this is what happens in this kind of subsection within this this letter he wants to affirm them if anything if the title for today is anything it's 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 Jesus our affirmation we've been talking about assurance but John wants them to know today that you're affirmed in your faith you're affirmed in your faith see John wants them to know that they are victorious in Christ They're victorious in Jesus over sin, Satan, and death. If they are in Christ, they are victorious over all of those things. And yet, over the last several weeks, or as you were first reading these first few paragraphs, maybe maybe John is being accused of what we love to say in, in church language, of stepping on their toes. And he takes a moment to remind them of who, again, they are in Jesus before pressing into them again. Again, John is not writing about how to be saved, but John is writing to remind the saved that they are saved. See, sometimes in pastoral ministry, it's a struggle to preach and uh, for a lot of different reasons. But, but one of those reasons is because we can control what we say up here, but we can't control what you hear. Because there's a difference. Right? We know this every Sunday that sitting somewhere out in the crowd, there's a person who thinks that the, the preacher boy turned, you know, knocked it out of the park that Sunday while simultaneously sitting across the aisle. There's somebody who thought, man, he didn't read, study, prepare, pray. He just got up there and winged it. Right? It's the difference in comedians. I, I like a good comic, all right, as long as they're clean enough that I can actually listen to them. But comedy is something that's very subjective, isn't it? You've got people laughing, and you've got people thinking that's the dumbest thing ever, right? And preaching can, can be that way, because as John is writing this, as he's preaching this, and even as I'm, I'm preaching it here this morning, there's this struggle, because I can control what I can say, but I can't control what you hear. And so he is both wanting to show how the gospel exposes those who aren't saved, but he also wants those to see who are really saved to be encouraged that they're saved. And man, living in that tension is really, really tough. How many of you guys have ever been sitting here and you go, man, I really wish so-and-so was here. They just happened to be absent on the sermon that they really needed to hear. Right? It's always the people who aren't here that really need to hear it. Okay? And we, we struggle with those things. We, we struggle to know how to live in that tension. It's, it's difficult because oftentimes when it comes to God's word and, and to the preaching of God's word, it's, it's tough to do both of those things at the same time. It is a two-edged sword, the Bible says. And so it needs to be cutting to the quick in some people's affections and hearts. While simultaneously, many of you have come here today beat up, bruised, broken from the week. 
And you need to be encouraged. And yet you've only got so much time. There's only one guy as of right now up here preaching this morning. And yet the Word of God is trying to do both of those things. It is supposed to, it is simultaneously wielding a sword at the enemy while bringing healing like a scalpel in a doctor's hand. And so oftentimes, the people who are arrogantly encouraged need to hear a sermon that discourages them, to be quite frank. And yet, those who are often really discouraged, what do they need? They need to be encouraged, and yet none of us can control what happens on that. (laughs) Again, the people who really need to get this, the hard truths, often are like, man, I'm so glad everyone else heard that. And the people who are saved and walking their faith, they live here going, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Do you see that tension? Maybe there's only three or four of us in here that feel that, but um, man, it's such a tension. And I think John is illustrating that pastorally, that tension. Because he does, he wants to expose non-believers. But he doesn't want the true believers in living in despair that they're not Christians. Do you get it? So, in this passage today, very, very, very briefly, um, in, in reference to how long I usually go here today, he's talking about assurance in Jesus, but he takes this break to affirm them because he simultaneously is very well aware of some things that he's about to address in the coming weeks, all right? So today is a great day for me in pastoral ministries because there's nothing here for you to do. There's no imperative, right? There's no commandment, go do this. And so literally, um, in some ways, I want us all just to take a deep breath. I'm not one of these preachers that says, like, look at your neighbor and say, he's got you, right? Because <laughs> that drives me insane, right? Personally. All right, I know some people, man, some preachers, they get on that roll. Look at your neighbor and say, he's got you. He's got you. He's got you. You know, and then the reform types are like, I ain't saying that. I ain't saying that. That's dumb. Right? So we don't know how to respond to those sorts of things. But I want this Sunday morning for it to be a pit stop, a moment of rest. Okay? I don't want us to become lazy this morning. But I want us to take a deep spiritual breath. Is that okay? We've got some things coming up. I'm just going to tell you, and this means half of you won't be here next Sunday. Next Sunday is tough. You need this deep breath. I need this deep breath today for lots of reasons. And and the scripture gives us that. All right? The first thing that we see inside this passage is is uh, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The first thing that we need to understand that John is reminding us, the Holy Spirit is reminding us, Jesus is reminding us, is that we are forgiven. We're forgiven. Again, who's he writing to? Christians. We're forgiven. And who's for whose sake? It doesn't say for Eric's sake. It doesn't say for your sake. 
It says, for God's namesake. See, the basis of our forgiveness is, is not for or our by, by our name, but, but by and for his name. See, this idea of forgiveness is about it streaming forth from his character and his nature, not our own. And we need to get that. See, if our forgiveness was based on something, our character would be very wishy-washy, wouldn't it? We would have it, and then we would lose it, then we'd have it, and then we'd lose it, and then we'd have it, and we'd lose it. And yet, because it's, it's remaining steadfast in God's unchanging character in nature, then it is true that we are forgiven, and we can have righteous confidence, not in ourselves, but in the sake of his very holy name. There is none like you. We've sung about that this morning. There's you know, none who is as holy as our God, and because of that, he has forgiven us. It's very reflective of a passage found in Isaiah chapter 43 that says this, I am him, he, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What a powerful statement. Who can declare that truth? Only God can, right? You and I have to file things away in people's lives when they've transgressed against us. And that is really hard to do. Half the population in here, you're professionals at it, all right? Um, typically, men have a file folder, all right, that we don't, and it only, it, it like becomes empty every 24 hours, because <laughs> we don't remember, if we got an argument with you yesterday, we don't remember what it was about, okay? Typically, our female sisters typically have a filing cabinet, right? Like, Laura knows things I did against her before I was, even knew her. Right? She's like, in 82, you winked at another girl. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't even remember. Right? I mean, there's, there's a tendency to have a filing cabinet. Okay? Again, both are equally as wrong. But as humans, from our perspective, we want to keep tallies. Right? You did this for me, so now I'm going to do this for you. All right? You did this against me, so now I'm, I get a freebie against you. Right? Aren't we so glad this morning that the Lord does not work like that? I mean, ladies and gentlemen, if you're in Christ, like, he has blotted out every transgression of yours and mine, past, present, and future. Like, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but the, but the, the, the book of your actions, which there is one, is covered in the blood of Jesus. And only he can blot out those transgressions. We, we need to practice that. And we need to work toward blotting out those things. But it's tough for us. Let's just be really honest. If you've ever been really, really hurt by somebody. I'm not talking about somebody pulling out on you in, on Scottsville Road. As terrible, as wretched as those people are. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about real hurt, real woundedness. Man, it's tough to blot that out. It's easier to much, much, much easier to write people off than it is to blot out their sin. And so thankful that Jesus is not like me. So glad that he is not. And so we need to be reminded of that beautiful thing this morning that we are forgiven. We're not forgiven because we are special or deserving of it. We are not better than, 
God did not find a spark in us or see a work that was deserving of his forgiveness. He simply did it according to his good pleasure. The tense of the language here in the original Greek language is is that your sins have been forgiven. My sins have been forgiven if we are in Christ once and for all. If you're a note taker, write this down. I love getting hung up on on one word or word phrases here. And the one that has come back and forth to me in a circular motion this week as I've been preparing for this is this idea of permanent forgiveness. Permanent, how sweet. When you take the idea of permanent and attach it to the truth of forgiveness. Like you and I in Christ have permanent forgiveness. See, Jesus satisfied God on the cross once and for all. This is the forgiving blood, is unifying factor of, for a diverse faith family. Those of us who are in Christ are equally forgiven. Think about that. We are equally forgiven. If we have buckets of transgressions up here, some of your buckets are more full than others. But at the cross and in the resurrection, guess what happens? It's an equal amount of forgiveness. One sin or one sin in one bucket and a hundred sins in another bucket, guess what they're both absolutely 100% um, worthy of? They're worthy of death. They're worthy of the wrath of God being poured out upon them. And yet in the person and work of Jesus, we stand equally forgiven. That's why, that's why we can say, man, it don't, it don't matter. In the, in the, are there earthly consequences? Yes, to so what you've done in the past, what I've done in the past? Absolutely. However, we're, we're more concerned is where God is concerned is this thing of when we like to testimony and jockey for position. And, and you've ever been to testimony service, right? Anybody been to one of those experiences? It's like, oh, oh, Lord Jesus, come back now, right? Because here's what happens. You get an hour of all the sin of these people, and we're just like, Oh my goodness, can you believe they did that? Oh my, oh, 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 I ain't that bad, right? And then they, Jesus, you know, cross over at the end and go, you need to be saved. After 59 minutes of telling us how bad they are, they give us a little bit of Jesus. See, that's not a testimony. Here's the testimony. One minute of how bad you are. 59 minutes of how amazing Jesus is, that's the testimony. And because of forgiveness, it allows us and it's equally been dispersed for those of us who are in Jesus. So that's why we can look at people. I mean, I've had people tell me some crazy stuff. And guess what? I've told some people some crazy stuff and we look at each other and we don't go, I can't believe you did that, blah, blah, blah. We go, man, isn't God great? Let's go eat. Right? Right? But apart from Jesus, you're just like, this is like a made, this is like a TLC movie, right? We're forgiven. The wrath of God is satisfied completely in Jesus, and He's paved a way for past, present, and future forgiveness. The second thing that we learn from this passage is that we know Jesus. We're forgiven, and we know Jesus. How do we know that we know Jesus? We 
keep his commands. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways. It's the way that John illustrates, and one of the ways that John illustrates that is that, that John sees obedience in his church folk. That's what church membership is about. Did you know that? It's about a gathering of believers who are united in mission and belief and who they, they affirm we can see that Jesus is evident in this brother and sister. John is affirming their salvation. All right? He can see that. He can see this obedience. In Jeremiah 31, 34, um, there's this institution of, of the new covenant and explanation of the new covenant. And, and Jeremiah says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So we have the knowing of God inter interspersed with the forgiveness of God. In heaven, there's no evangelism. It's something that ends. A job is preacher ends. The work of the evangelist ends. Because everyone there knows God, what a glorious day to know God and to be fully known and everyone who's there to know this God. We know God. We know Jesus. How many times does he use the word know inside this letter so far? Again, repetition, no, 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 no. I want you to know God. I'm writing that you will know that you're saved. I want you to know that you know God. All right? We need to be reminded of this morning that we've, we are forgiven and that we know Jesus. Interspersed in here as well is this idea that, that John reminds us that we have overcome the evil one. We have overcome the evil one. We, have, we are forgiven. We know Jesus. We have overcome the evil one. See, there's evidence of transformation. Once dead, now alive. In, in Paul's writing to the letter at, at the church in Rome, he, he states to them in Rome chapter 6, verse 12, that the bondage of sin is broken. I mean, don't think too much about it. But prayerfully, because of Jesus being inside of your life, aren't you kind of like astonished that you don't do some of the things that you really enjoy doing? That they just don't even mean something. I mean, something that you spent a lot of time, talent, and treasure doing. You absolutely enjoyed it. I want everybody to know, anybody that tells you that sin isn't fun is doing it wrong. Because it is. It's a lot of fun. And yet in Christ, because you've been shown a truer and better way of living in the person and work of Jesus, it, it loses its taste. Very few people uh, like coffee the very first time they try it. But if every morning you get up for a month and you try it every morning... I've never met anybody at the end of those 30 days who says, yep, still don't like it. But they get up going, I need two of those. 
You say things like you have an acquired taste for it. First time I tried sushi, I was like, well, that's garbage. Right? That's trash. And now I like it all. Like, I love it. It's one of my favorite food groups because you get vegetables, meat, and rice all wrapped up in a nice little roll-up. Right? It's an acquired taste. It's acquired taste. Blah, blah, you know, all this sophistication. It's acquired taste. Blah, 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 blah. You keep eating and drinking enough of that stuff, and you like it. You like it. Right? And, and likewise, in a, in a very generic elementary illustration, I get it, um, is that the, the things of this world go strangely dim as we draw near to Christ, that there are things that, that we acquired a taste for, and yet now because we are resting in the person and work of Jesus, there is this evidence that we've overcome these really fun, awesome things, but that there was a, a true and better way to live. I didn't realize these things were leading to death in my life, but now that I'm, I'm walking in the light, man, not only do I, I, I am I I'm still tempted to do those very things? Absolutely. But you realize how dark they are. See, brothers and sisters, again, we've said this. We're going to continue to say it because it's something that we all need to hear. Not only do we need to stop sinning, but we need to pray that God would help us to hate it. To hate it. To hate sin. There's evidence of transformation in these people's lives. They were once dead, now they're alive. The bondage of sin is broken. I mean, amen, hallelujah, right there. There's some bondage that is gone. How? Because the word of the Lord abides in them and they have overcome. From the heavenly realm, sin, Satan, and death have been defeated. They've been defeated. Like, old devil is on a chain, and the leash is short. He used to have free reign all over the world in God's creation. But in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you guys, you have to understand that, that, that Satan has, has been reined in. And typically, we don't get bit by that dog unless we step into its proximity. You ever seen a post with a dog? It wears out that circle of grass. And you're fine as long as you don't step in that circle. From the heavenly realms, God decreed in the cross and resurrection of Jesus that, that Satan is, is held back. That we are victorious in the person and work of Jesus. And yet, on a very earthly day-to-day -day concept, yes, are we, are we still, is the battle still being waged? Yes, it still is. And yet the weapons of our warfare against the enemy are primarily two things. Prayer and the word of the Lord. As John Piper says, those two things are intermixed with each other. They're entwined with each other. And John is alluding to some of this, of just this idea that the word of God allows us to fight the enemy by knowing God's promises and simultaneously knowing God's will. Because how does the enemy fight against us? Well, he's the accuser. He's constantly accusing us. He's keeping that filing cabinet of all the bad things that we've done. And he's constantly saying to God, you say this God and they've broke it. And by knowing the word of the Lord, 
and his promises, that allows us to combat the enemy by reminding God of, yes, those things are true of me, but your promises reign supreme. Simultaneously, if we ever have gotten ourselves into a place of temptation and being led towards sin, it's by knowing God's word that we have the, the artillery to fight against that very sin. This is what we see as Jesus is led out into the desert to be tempted, right? He's tempted in every way that you and I have ever been tempted. And yet, what was interesting about that is that, that Jesus isn't quoting the latest Christian book against the enemy. He's not slinging fortune cushions. Uh, fortune cookie Christianity back at the devil. But yet, what does he use? The word of the Lord. He uses God's word to overcome the evil one. In Ephesians 4.13, it says, Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, brothers and sisters, you and I have the word. And if we don't have the word, then whatever comes to our door or whatever we hear about or see on social media or the internet, then guess what? Then we can be tempted to lean toward that direction. Like, would you know that a so-called Christian book, if it was heretical? Because they're published all the time. If you ever look at blogs, I don't know if people do that anymore, but if you ever do, there's a great one named by a, a Christian author, Tim Chalice, or Chalice, however you say his last name, and he often will do book reviews, and every so often he'll do one on the top 10 most selling books from the previous year, and it is astonishing how many of them are heretical. Would you know a Christian book if it was heretical if you read one because you're so immersed in God's word that you realize something does not connect here this is really dangerous and when you begin to saturate yourself with that stuff you become it you are what you eat I'm a whole lot of barbecue You are what you eat, right? And that's not just a physical sense, but it's also a spiritual sense. You will start to believe heresy as truth if you're constantly digesting darkness. You'll begin to be deceived that it is true, that it is light. And so we must be immersed in God's word in order to overcome the evil one. Christian maturity is never void of biblical understanding. We as Mission Church must be in the word of God. We must have a healthy diet of God's word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Our heartbeat as a congregation and as a church is that we will be deeply rooted in God's word. I was recently accused as your pastor, or one of your pastors, we were all three accused of this, um, that all we wanted to do was share scripture with our, our members and pray for you. And they thought that was bad. 
you should be laughing. What am I, what else? I have nothing else to give. I have nothing else to give. What more could you want? Not the words of Eric Baker, but the words of an almighty God. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of Eric Baker. No, brothers and sisters. No, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish Psalm chapter 1 first chapter I memorized as a new believer my discipler he was like before you do anything else memorize Psalm 1 Because that's where the war is taking place is in your affections. Of It's wanting, this world is wanting, this life is wanting you to fill your lives with all kinds of darkness. And yet those who are rooted in the law of the Lord, the word of God. Not the word of man. The word of God. And John wants them to know that. You have overcome the evil one. And the word of the Lord, the word of God abides in you. These people knew the Old Testament. Do you get that? These people knew the Old Testament. Because by this time, not all the New Testament had been completed. These people knew the Old Testament. And they knew the Old Testament. And what did they see in it? Jesus. They saw Jesus in it. They abided in them. Knowledge and practice of the Word of God. We've been talking about this gospel doctrine, gospel culture. That's why we've been striving as, as your elder body and just encouraging you over and over and over again about the importance of biblical literacy. That we don't just want to know things so that we can win arguments. I want you to know that's not the goal. And if you look at Twitter or Facebook, that's pretty much what Christians are about. Let's just win some arguments. Like I don't, If I paid attention to everything on Twitter and Facebook and what it told me to do and not do, I wouldn't do anything. I don't sing the right songs. I don't pack the right Bible. All right? I don't wear the right clothes. I, don't, I wouldn't know what to do as a Christian. Because the very people who say you should do this comes out with an article the next week or the, within 24 hours typically of saying everything that this person just said that we should be as Christians is wrong and we should be doing this. Hey, let's become about the word more than we are about blogs and books. Can we do that? I mean, if you only got so much time in a day, read the Bible. Don't read a Christian book. All right? And if you're going to read a Christian book, it's always best to find one that has been scrutinized over and over and over again by someone you trust or, or by someone in the faith globally that we trust. 
Don't just go to the bookstore and pick one up. Or don't go to Walmart and pick one up in the religion section for sure. Okay? Case of point, some of you have been with me long enough. If there are pictures on the front of it, always stay away from those. Never buy a Christian book with the author's picture on the front of it. That's some free advice. It'll save you about 20 bucks or $13 from Amazon Prime. Okay? Christian author's picture on the front of it, run. Run. But that's why we here at Mission, we want to be biblically literate. I mean this. Do you know if I was teaching you heresy? Because you know the word. Because that's how much I want you to know the word. So that you can call me on it. And again, it's not so that we can win Twitter arguments, please. It's not so that we can berate people. My first few years of being biblically biblically educated, I was a terrible individual. I just wanted to be right. There is only one right one. And he is, as the scripture would say, capital R, the righteous one. And it is not me. It's not about winning arguments. We need, to, we need to stand firm to biblical truth. I'm not saying that we waver on biblical truth, but it is not about winning an argument. It's about pointing a person to Jesus, and those are two different things. I mean, I've been so encouraged as one of your pastors, and we have collectively about uh, the biblical literacy that we're seeing more and more, the conversations that we're having with people, um, the conversations that you're having with people, the things that you're reading. Uh, you know, this, even this past Monday night, I had the opportunity to sit down with about 10 of our ladies here at the church to start talking about systematic theology, and they blessed my socks off. There's a lot of good TV on Monday night. They could be at home watching. Have their feet up. Relaxing. And yet their desires were to, to know. Man, I was so encouraged by that. But it wasn't just about gospel doctrine. After an hour, I step out of that room because they begin to have conversations that I don't need to be a part of. And we want to create that environment for them to do it. And, and I don't know what all was said there, so I don't want to think the ladies that came to that know that I got a, a rundown about everything that happened because I don't. But I was encouraged by the testimony of hearing the prayers and the concern and the sharing and the vulnerability, gospel doctrine, gospel culture, gospel doctrine, gospel practice, gospel orthodoxy, gospel Gospel, gospel. Let's be that kind of people. In a time and day when we can be so easily discouraged, we are reminded of the depths of the simple truths today. We're forgiven. We know God. We have overcome the evil one. How? Through God's word. Through his, through his word. John is saying, as their pastor, I know that you know Jesus because I see Jesus in you. 
and as your pastors, I thank God that we can say it. That we can be encouraged and not in despair, but we can be encouraged because we see Jesus in each other. That our faith has hands to it, and a mouth to it, has feet to it. It's gritty, it's dirty. And yet we see Jesus. As we go into the next few weeks of talking and, and being challenged on some things, please don't forget these truths about who we are. Because what we do, apart from who we are, is disastrous and dangerous. But being reminded of who we are, then we can handle really difficult truths with gospel grace and a gospel understanding because we know who he is and we know who he has said that we are as well. Let's pray together.